Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are we doing today? How's it going, Sean? Very happy good. to have my friend Carlos uh, with us today. There you, there you go. I didn't even get to introduce him yet. So Dr. Carlos Quezada, he is a senior medical director at Genentech. Um, among other things, he's also a, a retina specialist by training, um, a father, a husband, um, and a longtime friend of both Bruno and I. So, Carlos, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here, uh, Sean and Bruno. And, you know, I think that uh, out of all, all the titles and whatnot, of course, you know, only second to, to being a father, uh, you know, the most important title I have is being your friend. So thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's fun. I'm there excited about it. Good, man. Good. Well, I mean, you know, we had this conversation back in, uh, you know, back at the beginning of March of uh, 2021. And when we're getting the podcast going, it was actually you that kind of gave Bruno and I that kick in the ass. And said, <laughs> I think I, I think I think I just swore on the podcast, but uh, it, gave, it gave us that kick in the ass to to, uh, you know, get this going. And uh, you're someone who is very, um, you know, has strong opinions about education and, and just um, equality and, and all these uh, wonderful things in medicine. So you say, get the podcast going, you guys can do this and I'll be your first guest. So I think you're like guest number 50. You were hard to nail down for, for, for a time, but, uh, um, but uh, here we are. So, um, so I wanted just to maybe uh, ask you to give a little background on who you are, um, you know, just your, some of the training that you've had as a clinician um, and what you're, what you're doing now professionally. Absolutely, Sean. So, you know, first of all, you know, I, I do want to, um, you know, congratulate both you and, and Bruno for actually, you know, taking the leap and, and getting the podcast going. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually a fan of it. And uh, you've had great people uh, on the podcast. So I'm, I'm actually happy and, you, you know, and honored to, to be here with, with you guys. So, you know, keep it going. Um, and then, you know, about myself, um, you know, I think that, you know, you, you cover the most important things when, when you were, you know, kindly introducing myself, you know, I'm, as of me, I guess, you know, I was born and raised in, in Mexico in a city called Torreon. It's a, a beautiful city in the middle of the north uh, of Mexico, right in the desert. Um, and I guess some people might, especially people from Mexico might debate with me whether it's a beautiful city or not. But, you know, I certainly think of it as a beautiful city where most of my family is actually still based. Uh, I did my medical education uh, over there, and then I went to Mexico City. I did a, a fellowship in, in uh, uh, gastro, uh, gastrointestinal surgery and, and hepatic surgery. At that point of my life, actually, I wanted to become a liver transplant surgeon. Um, and then um, after that, I did uh, my ophthalmology residency in Mexico City, and then I did my first uh, uh, surgical fellowship in vitro retinal diseases in Mexico City as well. And around that time, you know, I think you know that I've done, you know, martial arts uh, pretty much most of my life. And at that time, actually, I had the fortune of, of meeting Bruno. Um, and it was kind of a, a mixed mixture of um, it was really serendipity. I I I want to thank and and I think that the the you know yes you know of course being ophthalmologists both of us that that was certainly of interest but the thing that actually uh, you know got us even closer was actually martial arts, um, and then uh, you know just talking over um, a few beers uh, I think at that point of time I was really 
you know, I was always really interested in research and I wanted to come to North America to do a fellowship and, and get back to Mexico and, and, you know, kind of apply some of the learnings over there. And uh, that's how basically the idea of doing an ocular pathology fellowship at McGill um, came to be. And, uh, and yeah, so my next step after Mexico City was uh, being in Montreal where I got, you know, the, the fortune to meet you, Sean, as well. Um, it was, you know, one of the most amazing times that we we actually had as a couple. My wife, Ceci, Ceci and I, uh, and you know, me individually, you know, just learning about ocular pathology, doing research, and, and most importantly, the friendships that we were able to forge. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, um, you know, you and and Bruno were you know an amazing part of it. I still remember that uh, you know surprise birthday party that you threw for me. Uh, that was that was really awesome, and and, and of course, singing. Don't stop me now. What um, <laughs> was a lot of fun as well. Um, and then after that, I, I went to Santa Barbara, and, and I was fortunate enough to be there with um, uh, a private practice group. Uh, that's the California Retina Consultants, uh, where you know some people who I admired a lot, and I had read a lot about them, their papers. Um, you know, since I was a resident, um, were kind enough to accept me as a fellow. Uh, so I spent some time with them before coming back to uh, to Torreon, my hometown. So then, you know, I went back to Torreon, started my own um, private practice. Uh, you know, I started with a multi-specialty group and then kind of started expanding a little bit uh, and opened an office in Monterrey, which is a, a city that's close by um, uh, to Torreon. And uh, I practiced there for about three, uh, three or four years, I think, uh, before... You know, I came back to the States um, uh, to work for Genentech, where I'm currently working at. I'm uh, right now, my work is as a clinical science leader. Um, more recently, you know, I've been working on Fericimab, uh, and, and now I'm working on the port delivery system um, that are, you know, in, in phase three right now. Um, and I still keep, you know, kind of a you know, one, one leg in practice still. So I still go to see patients in Monterrey, of course. You know, COVID-19 came to change pretty much everything, right? How we, how we parent, how, you know, we keep in touch with friends um, and, and certainly how we, we, we practice medicine as well. And, and how in particular, you know, to me, how we combine this, you know, working in research in, in industry and in biotech um, and, and how do I keep, you know, kind of my clinical, um, you know, practice going on as well. So maybe I diverted a little bit, <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of in a nutshell, the, the, you know, kind of the, the road that has gotten me here. Yeah, no, I love how you casually, you know, like I may speak about your accomplishment, but like, I mean, it, like having it, like, you know, your clinic, it's, it's, it's accomplished of a lifetime for a lot of ophthalmologists and you know, like, I mean, and then having the job you have at Gentech, it's also like, I mean, a, a lifetime achievement for most people, like, and you happen to have both. Can you get some more color, man? Like, I mean, how does it work? Like, I mean, for you to have a clinic and manage, like, I mean, living in a different country. Thanks, Bruno. Thanks so much for, for those kind words. And absolutely. I think it's, um, you know, it, I have to say it, it's not because of me, it's just because of the, Again, you know, I just feel that I've been very lucky, uh, you know, to have, you know, friends and family who are extremely supportive. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I wouldn't be able to actually keep the, the clinical practice going without the support of all my, you know, teammates and, and you know, friends at Genentech who are supportive of me keep doing this. 
Uh, and that was, you know, kind of one of the things that, I, you know, when I joined Genentech, I said, you know, I'm very interested. I, I love research and I would love to come and, you know, work uh, with you guys and learn more about this and whatnot. But I'm not ready to give up, you know, seeing patients and I'm, I'm not ready yet. So I joined Genentech six years ago. And um, I think just, you know, the fact that I've been th there for six years, I kind of speaks a lot to how much I've enjoyed the challenges and, and the learning uh, experiences that I've had. But also, you know, being able to keep that practice going, uh, it's been it's been one of the things that really you know, kind of grounds me uh, and and gives me the energy to keep keep going. Honestly, and then for the for the practice, you know, I think I'm I'm lucky enough, you know, the um, in in Monterrey actually. So my father-in-law, he's an ophthalmologist and he's an anterior segment surgeon, um, and I have uh, you know a great friend as well who's a retina specialist. Um, Samantha Salinas in, in, in Mexico, in, in Monterrey, you know, who help us out uh, as well. And that's, you know, that's pretty much, uh, you know, kind of the, the recipe for how lucky I think I am. And of course, you know, the, the trust that, you know, many of the patients, have, you know, have in me, it's something that I, I take very seriously and that I, again, I, I just feel I'm very lucky, honestly. And and like not now talking about the work in the industry, right? Like I mean, with Gentech, and this is something that like most of uh, doctors, like I mean, would never experience in their lifetimes. Right? Like I mean, having that close relationship with the industry, uh, and and I I I, I kind of like now I know a little bit of it, and I <laughs> what I've realized so far is that the pace is strikingly different, and uh, you know, like the corporate culture is different as well. So there's a lot of differences. Like, of course, we all strive for the same thing, like improve the lives of patients. But you know, like, I mean, the way we work, it's remarkably different. So uh, you've, you've done both, you actually still do. So like, I mean, can you share like, I mean, what are, what are the biggest challenges like, I mean, that uh, a doctor might face if they jump into that, uh, the, the world of industry? Absolutely. Um... I mean, there's so, so many, I'm trying to think where to start, right? Um, it's kind of, a, you know, I think that the biggest shock for me in, in particular was, you know, at the beginning, jumping from, you know, having a very structured day, uh, you know, of course, you would have like an emergency case that you would have to go in, into the OR, you know, late at night or something here and then, or over the weekends. But in general, you know, you had a very structured, you know, clinics and, you know, the timing. So you kind of knew how and, and what to expect. And, you know, tied to that is kind of that, um, in, you know, immediate gratification, I guess, or challenges, right? Because, you know, there, there are certainly, you know, I mean, we human beings are this very complete um, living things, I guess, that, you know, we, we're not only, you know, patients who have neovascular AMD for that matter, right? We're dealing with many other things, you know, parenthood, um, you know, other diseases, economic challenges and whatnot. So there are patients who, you know, may be a little bit frustrated and make the day for a clinician, you know, maybe not as, as uh, happy, I guess, so to speak. But, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of rewards that are, you know, kind of very quick from, you know, the fact that we have the ability to help these people, which honestly, for me, it's it's really an honor and a privilege that we have as physicians. Um, so that kind of immediate reward, so to speak, of seeing, you know, maybe, you know, 40, 50 patients in a day, you kind of lose that immediately and you jump into a world that's filled with, you know, meetings and, and you have to work 
you know, with a lot of people, you know, as a physician, most of the time, of course, you have to work with your, um, you know, with, with your partners in the practice, if, if you're in private practice or with the whole department, if you're in academics uh, and whatnot. But now in industry, it's really, you know, you, you can be that, you know, as a surgeon, as a physician, you can, you can do a surgery and fix a retinal detachment and, and you know, help a patient preserve their vision, um, you know, hopefully most of the times. But, in an in industry, really, you know, one person by themselves can uh, accomplish nothing. Um, and, you know, that really reminds me about you know, there's this um, I think there's this Chinese saying, right, that I think it was Confucius, maybe um, around, you know, if you want to go far, you know, walk with with a group uh, in a nutshell, basically. And I think that working in industry really exemplifies that. Uh, you know, I think Bruno, you and I as martial artists really understand the value of, you know, kind of one-on-one, uh, you know, the value of one-on-one work and the value that you and the, as an individual can bring. But in industry, really being a team player is probably the most important um, quality that I think someone has to have. And, and it, it's oftentimes challenging. Man, this is, uh, you know, it, it echoes some of our earlier conversations um, when you first migrated into uh, industry and, you know, I've learned a lot from you over the last five or six years with you being in industry, um, and kind of shedding some light on, on, on everything there. Um, one of the things I've come to appreciate in our conversations is just the complexity, uh, and how many moving parts there are in, you know, in the machine that is a, you know, a, a, a large pharmaceutical company trying to, um, you know, come up with therapies and, and, and whatnot for, for very, uh, you know, devastating diseases. So I was hoping maybe you could walk us through that a little bit, that process, um, or, or as much as you can, you know, if, what does that look like from the point that, okay, a disease is, is identified as, uh, you know, that they need, something needs to be targeted, uh, you know, a target, you know, and the basic research side of thing has been identified right through to, you know, drug development and, um, and approval. Um, I know, I know that you could probably talk about this for four or five hours, but if you give us a high level overview, like what's, what's involved and maybe what are some of the challenges, um, at each step of that, that, uh, process? Absolutely. I'll, I'll try to be as concise as possible. Um, so, so the first thing that I would say is that really, you know, that teamwork that I was talking about when working within industry, that really kind of expands and, and that's actually a reality. So industry does not work, you know, by itself, uh, you know, it's really, kind of, uh, you know, one part of the puzzle, we work closely with, you know, uh, private practices, uh, we work closely with academics as well, we're always looking for collaboration, so we can, you know, identify precisely in, in early development, those targets that might, might make sense. And, you know, that that brings me a little bit to some of the projects that I've been working on. And that's a little bit of kind of the story around how Ferisimab came to be. Um, you know, to target to, to different molecules. So I think constantly we're, we're looking to partner with, with um, you know, academics and, and pra- private practices as well to learn, you know, what are the targets that make sense um, and, and how we can actually bring them to help, you know, many people's, uh, people, people's life around the world. And then when you talk, when you, when you think about, you know, the, um, the way that we do drug development, so to speak, it's really, you know, really mirroring the different stages of, of clinical trials. We have, you know, our preclinical group who's basically, you know, looking for targets, as, as we've mentioned. 
and once you know a target basically out of you know many many targets they move into um you know a phase one study once we get into the clinic we basically you know uh, follow the kind of the same principles around uh looking for um safety more uh more than anything but also those ranging studies as well and we you know assuming we we do that and you know i i can actually go you know what i actually i think there's a great example about this and and you know i think it's uh lampolizumab which you know was um you know a treatment that genetic was actually developing at the time that i joined for the treatment of geographic atrophy um and and to be honest to me as a physician it was actually very um one of the, one of the things that was very inspiring um you know when when i first joined uh, genentech as, as well because of this you know lampolizumab was you know just tested in phase 1 and then we had the phase 2 study which was mahalo uh and we you know the the company um uh, saw a signal uh for a potential benefit and it was a small study and and it was the the cfi um positive subgroup that you know seemed to be um experiencing a benefit uh for of 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 this treatment and with even with the small um you know trial that we had the company took a big risk and actually went on to you know put together a clinical development program that was very comprehensive not only did we you know the company developed two registrational trials chroma spectry but in addition to that the company invested in in two very large trials um uh, to the to study the natural history of geographic atrophy i mean you might know that you know ga basically at least when i was a, a resident back in 2005 2006 um you know it was kind of a very small topic in in you know in our textbooks and we didn't really had a lot of uh, great data around the natural history and for me to see the level of investment in you know trying to understand the natural history was great and i will never forget the day that the top line results of chroman spectry were shared uh those were negative um and and you know the kind of the feeling you know everyone and th this is something that i re i really you know want to highlight as well the fact that you know um when we think about you know industry or practices or ac academics or whatever it's really people who make those different industries and i can tell you that i'm always inspired because you know for me in a way it's very easy to kind of ground the work that i do you know analyzing data designing trials and whatnot to the patients that i see you know I, last week i was actually in monterrey seeing patients and uh, and you know it's easy for me to get that energy i guess from from the patients and my willingness to serve them uh and bring that to work but you know for the vast majority of people in industry who are not exposed to patients they're actually they have this tremendous passion to help patients that it's just amazing for me to see and i i i can tell you that i i sometimes harvest that that passion as well whenever i'm i'm feeling low or something to keep just keep going forward um and you know going back to the lampolizumab story the day that the that failure was announced there were people crying um in the building and you know when i was asking you know i have to say this this might not be true but at least it was my impression right my my initial thought was like oh my god well you know maybe they're you know they're crying you know because you know they might think you know they might they may lose their job or something right um which is you know kind of a very fair um you know concern but i i stopped and you know kind of try to 
understand what was happening with one of my colleagues. And, you know, she was just saying, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, this, this is a big failure. So patients with this disease will not be able to be treated. And, you know, and she was even saying, you know, I even wonder what, uh, what are the consequences that this will probably have, you know, an investment, um, you know, for trying to cure this disease. And, and that was a very powerful moment to me. Um, and again, as a retina specialist, you know, I, seeing that the company actually moved forward to publish the data from the registrational trials, but also from the natural uh, history studies, the, uh, you know, proxima A and B, uh, you know, was really, really powerful, right? Because at least in my naive mind, I, I, you know, I, I guess a part of my brain was still kind of thinking that there might have been this, you know, kind of dark side, so to speak, that then they would just lose interest. In, and that was not the case at all. Um, and, you know, um, I think that's how we get to, uh, you know, kind of the late stage, um, you know, part of drug development through a lot of failures. Uh, but I think that people, you know, as it is true for human history, we're always, you know, kind of building on, on past failures and, and building for, for successes. And that's inspiring for me as a physician, for sure. Yeah. And like, you know, you, you, you sort of like, I mean, touched a bit already, like on, on the next question that I would have, right? I mean, it would be like, uh, what are the major challenges or, or, or running a clinical trial? And like, I think the easy answer would say, like, I mean, it's everywhere. Like, I mean, it's, it's such a risk uh, endeavor, like, I mean, to go on a clinical trial and, and people usually see the success stories, right? Like, but they don't see, like, I mean, how many of those clinical trials fail and, and, and like how much they cost, right? Uh, and and then they partially explain like I mean why why some drugs are so expensive because like not only the clinical trials that succeed cost a lot of money, but you know like I mean there are the ones that fail that like I mean, also cost a lot of money and then they didn't bring any revenue right exactly. Uh, and and so like I mean maybe if we can like just be, be more specific right like I mean about clinical trials specifically uh, of course it's challenging like to recruit uh, uh, principal investigators and eventually like find patients that are willing you know, like I mean like to to take on an investigative investigative drug uh, and and if you could maybe like get a top three, you know, like, I mean, the, the top three challenges, like, I mean, that a, a pharmaceutical company have on designing and running a clinical trial, which one would they be? Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a tough one. Cause as you noted, Bruno, there's, mm -hmm. there are many challenges, you know, from, from the early phases of designing to, you know, certainly the execution, there's always something that happens while we're running trials. Um, and, um, but anyhow, so if I were to, summarize it in maybe three or four points, I will probably say that the first challenge is designing the trial, right? Really having a clear, you know, clear in your mind, what's the objective of the trial? Um, you know, that's really helpful, but, you know, designing, coming to an optimal trial design, it's always challenging because there, there are many people who are involved who, you know, may have different um, objectives out of, out of a trial, right? So, you know, for me as a practicing clinician, I may want to have a trial design that really mirrors what I do in my clinic. But what I do in my clinic may not be acceptable for, um, you know, health authorities um, around the world. And that points out to another challenge, with, with, which is, you know, when we're developing the developing uh, new medications or devices, um, you know, globally, we have to work with many different health authorities around the world that may have different requirements and, and different, um, you know, objectives as well. So trying to find that medium ground um, 
you know, in that design, it's always, um, you know, kind of a, um, you know, an art, I, I will say. And, um, but it's certainly something that it's, it's really, you know, fun and brainstorming and, and having all this, you know, brain power of having, you know, clinicians, uh, you know, uh, health authorities and, and, you know, colleagues providing their input into a trial design. It's always something important. Uh, and that comes with, you know, kind of a, the next challenge I th- that I can think of right now, which is, you know, the trade-offs that you're leaving. And then, you know, how are you going to be thinking, uh, you know, that for the future, you're going to be fulfilling those gaps that you may not be answering at that point of time. Because, you know, we're physicians, uh, you know, we want to improve patients' lives through, through improving their vision. But, um, you know, we're also scientists. So, you know, curiosity, it's something that, you know, we... We, we have, right? And, and if I could, you know, I, I, I would do so many things and ask so many questions in one day, but we have to prioritize. Um, and then the other challenge I would say would be when, when we're running a trial, you know, basically the protocol becomes like the gospel truth. And, and that I think, even though, you know, we, you know, investigators are very experienced and, you know, very familiar with GCP rules good clinical practice um, rules and, and um, whatnot. It's always challenging when, you know, there's something that, you know, because of an oversight or, you know, just because of life happening, for example, um, you know, a patient missing a visit or something, that we, you know, we have a prodigal deviation, you know, people sometimes take this personally and it's not. And, and you know, there's there's always that kind of challenging part of, you know, kind of, managing the relationship and, you know, explaining the why we're doing the things, uh, you know, to our investigators, um, you know, so I was fine understand. So I think that that people side, it's also, you know, um, you know, quite challenging. And then the third one that I would mention would be, and which I think it's the most important one, it's safety, right? Um, I think that in, you know, in, in medicine, there's this, uh, you know, the principle, right, from uh, primum non nocere, which is, you know, basically first, don't do harm or, or not to harm. I don't know the, the actual translation. I apologize there. Um, and, and that's something that it's really on top of, of mind for, for me. And, and I can say that for all of our colleagues. So this is something that we take seriously. And that's the biggest challenge because despite the fact that we get all the way to phase three, for example, I'll, I'll give the example of Farisma, right? We had a very robust drug development program with more than 500 patients um, you know, cross two indications in phase two and phase one, uh, you get now to, uh, you know, global phase three program with, you know, more than 3000 patients around the world. And you always wonder if, you know, there's going to be uh, something that might harm a patient that I think it's one of the things that, you know, keep, you know, can't keep me up at night and, and, you know, many of my colleagues as well. So safety is probably the most challenging and, and, you know, we, that that's the key piece I think for for me as a physician and as a drug developer that you know it's always uh, of utmost importance. I mean, as we, I mean, still clinical trials, right? Like specifically, you know, like I mean, let's dive into like the 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 ones you're involved on and like I mean, the ones you're excited about. Uh, like, can you give us some color like on uh, the the promising drugs that? like you involved on what kind of disease they treat and and, and how they sure. can change like, the landscape what they can like improve upon what we do already absolutely um so um you know i, I think well first of all i'll say that we're 
I feel just privileged to be living in this area, in this era where, you know, there are many, there's a lot of interest in ophthalmology. Uh, there's a lot of different companies investing um, in, you know, targeting, discovering new targets and developing new drugs as well. Uh, so I think it's really exciting um, around the things that I'm most excited about, you know, is, you know, Ferisimab and PDS. And, you know, in a way, of course, I'm biased because I've been working on both of them since um, 2015. Um, but I'm really excited because, you know, we had positive uh, data readouts from our phase three trials for, for, both, for both programs, you know, in age-related macular degeneration for both ferisimab and PDS. But we also had positive data for our um, diabetic eye disease program in, in ferisimab. Um, so, so that's really exciting. I mean, right now we're working with uh, health authorities uh, around the world uh, and hopefully, um, you know, we, we certainly think that the benefit risk profile is positive for, for both of them. And hopefully they'll be approved um, in, the, in, in the future. And, and I think those two programs actually have a, a very big potential of benefiting patients, um, you know, in the short term. And, and I also think and I hope that, you know, the, this positive, um, you know, results can actually help you know, drive more interest into ophthalmology so we can have more discoveries and more developments or of new and better drugs that can actually help help patients. Um, so that's kind of like the the most the latest drugs that I'm, I'm really excited about. You know, PDS is a very innovative delivery, um, you know, system that, that, you know, really provides, um, you know, sustained delivery of ranivizumab over very long periods of times. And I think that can target you know, one big need around the world, which is, you know, very close to me in, in Mexico, which is, you know, kind of the, the, the lack of compliance with treatment and difficulties with coming to, you know, to the office often to, to get injections. And then Ferisimab on the other hand as well, uh, you know, kind of the first uh, multi-targeted approach um, with, you know, very extended dosing uh, regimens as well, uh, delivered by IVT injections. So those are the two things that I'm excited about. And then, there's many things on the pipeline, you know, both at Genentech and at many different companies as well that I'm really excited. I think that in general, you know, I'm really excited about gene therapy. Um, it's, you know, oftentimes with gene therapy and, you know, the three of us have been talking about gene therapy since like eight years ago or something and in many different ways. And, and oftentimes I feel that it's like, you know, I get this feeling of being so close, but at the same time, so far away. But I certainly think that gene therapy has the potential to, you know, unlock a, a better way of treating our patients with, you know, retinal diseases in general, and in particular for those with monogenic diseases um, uh, as well. So I'm really hopeful that gene therapy will keep evolving and will keep learning uh, in that field and, you know, circumvent some of the challenges that we've had around, um, you know, inflammation, the, the route of delivery, um, and, and of course, effectiveness as well. And then the other broad topic that I'm excited about is actually machine learning. I, you know, I, I certainly believe that uh, machine learning, it has a lot of, just AI, I guess, in general, has a huge potential um, in helping humanity, uh, uh, you know, in a broad level, and certainly, but certainly medicine. I think that, um, you know, machine learning has the potential to, to basically, help us be better physicians. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, one of my mentors, 
I remember saying one, one, one point of time is saying, you know what, somewhere in the world, and I say this, you know, with, with a lot of respect, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put myself in that analogy, I guess, so, so I don't, you know, offend anyone. I, it's certainly not my intention, but the, the saying was, you know, somewhere in the world, the world's worst doctor has a patient who's actually waiting outside of, of you know, um, his, his room, uh, waiting to be seen. And if we can actually have, uh, you know, machine learning help that doctor become better. And, and you know, I'll, t I'll talk about myself, you know, again, uh, you know, if I can have machine learning help me become a better doctor and help me give better, you know, prognosis to my patients, I think that's very invaluable because the one question that I get the most when I see a patient for, who's struggling with um, diabetic retinopathy, for example, for the first time, it's, you know, what's my prognosis? Am I going to get my vision back? And, and oftentimes we can give an estimate based on, you know, large registrational trials around what was the mean result for the mean patient. But again, the mean patient from trials are not actually walking into my office. So it's really hard to individualize. So machine learning, I believe, can actually help us deliver this personalized healthcare that I think it's so critical. And do you, I mean, we've seen AI on, on diagnostic devices, and like, but do you think there's some room and potential for AI to be used in drug development as well? Yes, I, I think so. I, I hope so. And, you know, I'm actually working closely with some of our scientists at Genentech as well. It's one of the other projects that I'm, I'm working on to try to figure out, I think, you know, there's a lot of papers published around, you know, whether we can actually predict uh, treatment, you know, outcomes uh, for, you know, response to anti-VEGF treatments in particular. I'm very interested in, in, in seeing if we can actually go further and determine what's the visual potential for a, for a given patient you know, just based on baseline data. Um, and also what would be the, the, the ideal treatment regimen? By that, I mean, what would be the least frequent regimen that can actually maximize a patient's, um, you know, visual uh, potential? So I'm, you know, there's a lot of challenges that we still have to overcome. Um, but uh, I think that with, uh, with the dedication of, you know, a lot of the scientists and, and just sharing, you know, I think you touch upon something that, I, you know, I, I wanted to come back to, which is, you know, kind of the overall bias that we have towards publishing and even presenting, you know, positive results. But I think it's really critical that we actually kind of change our mindset. And, and you know, I, I hope that people in industry, in academia, and in private practice, and of course, you know, peer reviewers and editors in journals as well, start publishing more, you know, uh, negative uh, results, because I think it's really important, as I said, I think building on our mistakes, or just, you know, not mistakes, but our failures as well, it, it's so critical. And I think for machine learning in particular, uh, it's going to be extremely important. I think that, you know, you, you talk about building on failures, but it's not just failures, right? I mean, you're, what you're highlighting there is just, you know, negative results. It just, a, or, or a result that, you know, just didn't work out the way we wanted it to. And because it doesn't, you know, something that's not really newsworthy, then, uh, then it might not get published, but it would serve the scientific community very well to, um, to be aware that, Hey, you know, this group has already tried this and it didn't really pan out to the way and theoretically it would. Right. So, that makes a makes a lot of sense. Um, 
Carlos, I, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, but I have one more question before we before we let you get back to <laughs> to managing clinical trials and patients and all the other responsibilities you have. Uh, baby kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, <laughs> and it's not, you know, the question should be, how do you function on like 37 minutes of sleep a day? I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, the, uh, no, so you have, I mean, you have a megaphone here. You know, you have thousands of people that will hear this uh, across the world um, that are patients, that are researchers, that are clinicians. Um, if, if you have, uh, do you have any overarching messages or pieces of advice that you would like to, you know, broadcast to, to a very focused, um, community interested in ophthalmology and, and eye care? Um, you know, what would you, what would you want to say, or even if you want to segment that by, by group? Oh my, it's, um, it's a very, uh, comprehensive, um, request my dear Sean um I don't think I'm anyone to give any advice to anyone <laughs> first of all I will say <laughs> I'll just but, agree uh, with that man <laughs> uh, this is it I, I know I know deep in the deep inside you there's a philosopher in there somewhere so I thought it'd be a, a good good idea to put you on the spot on the podcast oh, and, and ask for your words of wisdom for the the global ophthalmology community so what, what, what we're waiting for we're, we're gonna sit here until you serve up something oh man oh, the problem of giving a... words of wisdom like that make us feel pretty old so there we go <laughs> <laughs> oh man well um i think the only the only piece that i can really think of is you know really be true to yourself i i think that you know as long we have as long as we have a clear vision about what it's our objective in life. And, you know, I hope that, you know, all of us who are involved in patient care and, and, you know, involved in the health industry, I want to think, you know, as you know, as you guys know, I'm a big believer in the fact that, you know, all human beings are, you know, good and, and have, you know, limited potential. And, you know, I hope, I think that as long as we keep, you know, the patient benefit, we not only think about the patient, because, you know, oftentimes we just refer to the patient, but we oftentimes forget that there's a family, you know, and friends around them. Um, you know, I, I think that as long as we take that core group at the center of, you know, what wakes us up, what makes us do the things that we do and, and you know, the decisions that we make, I think that the outcome will be positive in the long term. And, and you know, I hope that, you know, I can just put some, you know, a little grain of, of, um, of sand, as, as they say in Spanish. I don't know if that translated well to English, but, you know, of, you know to help, you know, if someone else make a you know, new observation that leads to a new discovery that can hopefully, you know, help patients afflicted with, with eye diseases. That's, you know, kind of coming from a very um, egocentric point of view because, you know, of course, I'm an ophthalmologist and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in, in this, you know, mission for, for life. But, you know, I hope that everyone else, you know, everyone does, you know, whatever they, the work they do, I think it's critical as well from, you know, the people who are cleaning, um, you know, the um, big academic centers or industries, the, the, the clinical trial centers, you know, to the big important, um, you know, physicians who are the, the principal investigators and whatnot. I think if we can tie it back to who are the people who we're trying to serve, I think that, you know, we can be very excited because I think the future for human race uh, in general is going to be very positive. And, and, you know, I, I can only hope 
you know, to one day be, you know, very old and retired and, and you know, with you three guys and probably doing some jujitsu, hopefully if our joints allow us and, and just seeing a very different, um, you know, landscape of how retinal, you know, eye diseases in general are being treated. And that's not, that's, uh, that's great. You know, that, uh, the human side of just service and patient centric. There's just one um, point in what you said I'd like to correct, and is that you will never be retired. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you 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 will be serving patients or some cause uh, even when you're when you're old. So, <laughs> uh, but now Carlos, listen, man, this has been this has been fun. We're gonna have to do this again, uh, hopefully in person soon. That would be fantastic. We get all Absolutely. the uh, the families together, and we can we can do this uh, do this live. But I want to uh, thank you for for joining us today and sharing, uh, you know, your stories and, and words of wisdom. I think it's something that, uh, that the broad eye community is certainly going to enjoy. Well, thank you so much, my dear Sean and, and, and Bruno. I, uh, I certainly, I'm looking forward to being in person and hopefully, you know, uh, if we all do our, our job well, you know, we will be able to, to get together soon. Thanks for the chat, uh, Carlos. Always good to connect with you, my man. Absolutely. Big hug, my friends. Take care, bro. Take care, buddies. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.